Hello everybody and welcome back to 2021's final episode of the Chief Librarian Podcast. I am your Chief Librarian, Chris Morgan, and once again, I'm happy to be here with you. Today's intro I'm going to keep short and sweet because there is a lot going on. It is the week of Thanksgiving here in the United States. And so on top of all of that, with all of the moving prep, which is happening next week, I don't have a lot of time to dilly-dally. Nevertheless, I have not forgotten the pleasures of your ear holes and hope to satisfy them with the good lineup of content that I have today. To start us off, I have an interview with a very talented local painter named Darcy. Now, you probably would recognize Darcy's name from some of the pre-release hype articles that Warhammer Community puts out where they send a bunch of new models to very talented painters that they scout from Instagram and all over the place, and they have them paint up cool things for them to show off on their website. So the discussion, we're just going to talk to Darcy, talk about painting, talk about her history in the hobby, her favorite color, all of the burning questions that you would like to know from someone who paints much, much better than I do. So look forward to that. On the second segment, we have the breakdown of my crusade force for the Diadem War. Now, we are getting our orders prepared, and we will be setting up our first round of the Diadem Wars game games after the intro game that we had. And I thought I'd do a mini walkthrough of what it's like to prepare a Crusade Force for anybody who hasn't done one already. And also talk a little bit about the, the theme of my army and how I tried to make Crusade fit what I had in mind. So... Look forward to that as well if you are interested in Crusade and thematic army list building for narrative gaming. So far as hobby progress goes, unfortunately I was not able to get all of the things done that I wanted to do, that I said I wanted to do on the last episode. I bet that happens to literally nobody who's listening to this. That said, I was able to get the stuff I needed to get done, done for the D&D campaign finale that I DM'd this last weekend. The local group of intrepid adventurers were able to successfully save the tavern keeper's daughter who had been seeing visions of the future from a gang of nasty slavers and the mercenaries they hired. Now, I will just, I, I have to put it out here. I built an encounter that I thought would be really tough for the party. It was a little bit imbalanced in my favor. I wanted to try and give them something a little bit more challenging because all of the other stuff that I've had them do has not been super challenging. At least, I thought it was, and then, as it turned out, they were able to beat it all very, very easily. So, color me surprised when I come up with this very hard encounter with some pretty tough enemies and some nice magical artifacts wielded by them that I've never seen such a preponderance of critical successes in my life. You know, I had a level 5 character, Rogue, crit on a sneak attack that did enough damage to one-shot an NPC that I built a character sheet for that was a higher level than she was. And it just goes to show what, I don't know, sound living does for people? I don't know. It was a lot. And my carefully crafted encounter, of course, as all DMs likely understand, just was a walk in the park. So uh, gloves are off for next time, all of you. <laughs> Anyway, there were some really cool minis that I painted up for that, and that was a nice sort of change of pace. But I didn't get to do any of the Aeronautica stuff that I wanted to do, and I didn't get to work on any of the new painting projects for my Blood Angels that I wanted to do, including the 30k character that I wanted to make. 
Though, I am happy to say that yesterday, the parts for that guy arrived in the mail. So, yay for that. And so far as other gaming is concerned, I was thankfully able to get one more game in for the 30k campaign. I played Aaron and his Thousand Sons, and I put up some pictures for you guys to look at as we go through the show. But it was a really good time, and played another Zone Mortalis game, and of course... I managed to roll a dangerous terrain test and fail the first time I used my special jump pack, Contemptor Dreadnought, meaning that he was immobilized. Yeah, the one in the pictures that has wings. Yeah. I don't know why I keep bringing jump packs to Zone Mortalis. It's probably because I don't have boarding shields yet. But perhaps that's about to change. Anyway, D&D, 40k, 30k, it's all going in boxes, and we'll see when I have time to get it all out again. But I do hope as we get into this episode, that you have some wonderful plans and some good good things coming your way this holiday season. Without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the interview with Darcy and take a step into the Librarius. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special Artificer segment of the Chief Librarian Podcast, and I am very happy to welcome Darcy. How are you, Darcy? Hi, Chris. I'm doing great. How are you? So tell me how to pronounce your last name before I butcher it. The the, uh, the painting online name or the full (laughs) Serbian name? All of the above. Okay, so my real last name is, it's marital, is Bonavich. And then um, I just go by Darcy Bono because, uh, again, it's my marital name, and I'm about as Eastern European as a leprechaun. So I just was like, well, Bono, Darcy Bono just sounds better just for brevity. So Isn't that's... Bono from U2 Irish as well? So yes. is there yes. a secret that, Irish that connection? Also, not that I'm a, I'm not like a huge U2 fan, but it's... <laughs> But I mean, it, it worked. It worked with the name and Darcy's an Irish name. So I'm like, ah, we'll just drop the bitch. It's fine. Uh, and then, you know, it works. Asked cool. my, oh, asked my husband. I was like, can I legally just drop the bitch? He's like, I'd rather not for, uh, you know, tax purposes. I'm like, oh, OK. <laughs> yeah, paperwork's paperwork's nasty. Ugh, yeah. Taxes. But yeah, Bonovich or Darcy Bono to everyone that wants to save time. Cool. So tell me a little bit about your history in the miniature painting hobby like how did you get started and all of that so i started when i was 14 um this was back in like 2004 with six edition uh warhammer fantasy battle and um a friend of mine actually introduced me to it her brothers had started i think the lord of the rings uh, a series of it and had just been kind of playing around with like um, terrain building, and they, they we really lucked out and had one of the few games workshop stores um, within you know normal driving distance uh, from our house. Um, we we're we we're in Virginia at the time, and I think there were maybe two stores there. There was one in like D.C. and then one uh, just outside of Richmond. So I was like, well, I want to see what this is about, and 
you know, 14 years old. My mom drove me there. And uh, my mom is actually a huge closet nerd. So her um, enthusiasm for like fantasy based stuff, she like tries to keep it under under her hat but then once she sees stuff she gets like really animated which is super uncommon for her so i think her enthusiasm <laughs> definitely uh added to mine because we like walked in there and i was like oh my god they're aztec dinosaurs and she's like oh there's mummies with scorpions and there's these blade dancers with this forest dragon over here look you want these guys i'm like ah so it was uh it was a whirlwind of excitement um, and I ultimately decided on the lizard men. Um, and my friend who introduced me to it uh, went with the Bretonians. And my butt was thoroughly kicked by them three times in a row by their great flank charges. And I went, you know what? I think I'm just going to paint. So <laughs> 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 and that, that's something I can control that doesn't rely on dice that I can actually improve at. So, <laughs> so um, that that pretty much kicked it off from there. Um I literally didn't play a full game again for another, oh God, until like, uh, when, did, when did we get here? 2017, 2019? <laughs> so until then, it was all, all painting between 2004 and 2019. Okay, so you, you moved to Utah then in about 20, you said it was 2019 or 2017? I I think it was 2019. Yeah, it okay. was uh, uh, my husband's in the Air Force. So we, we were in um, Wyoming and Montana before that. So there was like zero community, uh, zero hobby community there. So actually having a, a a local scene to go to and get excited about Warhammer, it was something new and utterly thrilling to me. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that was 2019 because that was when uh, Warcry, Age of Sigmar Warcry came out. And that was a good uh, segue into the actual like tabletop gameplay element of it because i like i said i'd played before but i really preferred painting uh and just the amount of time it took for me to learn the rules get everything on the tabletop only to have my butt kicked thoroughly i was like well i could have painted like quite a bit in this amount of time <laughs> <laughs> well does your husband in, like enjoy the hobby with you do you game with your husband or with your family at all uh he's he's interesting um he prefers he's old school he likes the scale model uh war, world war ii um military historical vehicles and stuff yeah um yep. like it, tanks and all that so he's really into the scale model aspect of it but he he had dabbled here and there like in high school and stuff never he was never like super gung-ho but then once i got back into warhammer he's got back into scale model and now he's painting quite a few um astra militarum guardsmen tanks um not not for himself they were they were a commission that i took because i was like i don't really paint vehicles and i, I had told the, the client this but you know i wanted to try my hand at you know weathering and that that entirely like industrial look and i i did two tanks i went you know what this just is not my cup of tea like i can get it to look right but it's just it's just not my thing husband would you like to do this yes so <laughs> he's been doing quite a bit more um once i got uh, more involved with the hobby <laughs> hey well i mean anytime you can enjoy a hobby with a loved one no matter how they yes. do it like one of one of my favorite things to do with my wife is like if she's playing a video game and i'm playing a video game even if we aren't mm -hmm. playing the same game that we're we're next to each other doing something that yeah. we both enjoy that's similar and it's super rewarding oh absolutely our our best member one of our best memories together is beating borderlands the pre-sequel together uh during um the denial of service attacks by lizard squad whatever those 
doofus kids were that were like screwing up the uh, Xbox Live connection. That's one of my best memories was beating the end boss because we kept disconnecting. And every time one of us disconnected, the other one was on our own fighting the end boss. But we did it together. Fond, fond, nerdy couple memories. Yes, you, in fact, <laughs> defeated the lizard men as well as the end boss. <laughs> They always have the best names. These these fun ruiners. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? Is, what? what? And, I, and he told me he was like, oh god, I think this is the lizard squad. I'm like, no, I think this is the unboss. He's like, no, no, no. He's like the, the people that are screwing up the connection. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> wow. But hey, memories, right? I know, and I'll never forget it. I'll be an old crazy lady in a nursing home ranting to the orderly about that, and she'll be like, okay, but. <laughs> Okay, so moving from a place that didn't have much like hobby community, I've I've never been to Montana, so I couldn't I couldn't say for myself. But coming into Utah, like what was the the difference, and how did you start like in- engaging with the community, and how did it sort of change the way that you enjoyed the hobby? Well, the the main answer to that is is honestly social media. I think that that alone has just helped the hobby explode. Um, just as as far as like helping people connect i mean that's the whole purpose of social media so basically as soon as i moved here i looked up you know hobby stores warhammer stores and there was one literally like across the road from my house in uh, warhammer layton and so that was a great spot and i i walked in one day to get i think loon curse it was some box set that was going on and there were a bunch of other people there and they were like instantly super welcoming like just it was it felt weird like almost like the first day of school kind of thing like you know new kid on the block and Mm. then you know as soon as it was there it was just instant instant click which is not something that usually goes on with me i i'm very much introverted unless there's a certain topic of interest and in this case everyone has has that topic of interest is warhammer so as as soon as that happened as soon as conversation started then it was just like oh what do you what do you do what do you play and then you know it just rolled from there um, and then Facebook helped me find, you know, stuff outside of the immediate, you know, Leighton, Ogden area and um, Mario um, uh, from Paragon Games that the whole uh, Salt Lake City crowd was great. I got to go to a couple tournaments there and meet meet tons of new people there. So it, it just kind of avalanched into um, a community, a very welcoming community. Yeah, I got to I got to pat Mario and pretty much everybody in the Utah community on the back for just how much it's grown and how great it is, the kind of attitude that we have about everything. I just, I'm really glad that you're here to enjoy it. And that outside perspective probably helps because, you know, I, I grew up around here, but mm. I also like my dad raised me as a war gamer. He was a war gamer from before when I was born. And so that's just, oh, wow. I had a weird sort of progression in the hobby because a lot of people who I met, got into it either through like a friend or through like Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons or something like that. I just, I started right with wargaming as a kid. And so my perspective is a little weird, little, little off. That's, that's good though. That's like a, a like almost, I mean, <laughs> that's like the Holy grail of starting wargaming. <laughs> it's just, you're like born instantly into it with someone that's been doing it forever. Oh, and it's it's great that he loves to make terrain too because I benefit oh, from yes. that so much. <laughs> I I yeah, that's like one of the things that uh, way outside of my wheelhouse. Whenever I see like good terrain or board building, I'm just like mind blown. 
So that's that's awesome. Yeah, I always have ideas, but I never have the energy to actually try and make something. So. I, I have neither. If you give me a blank slate or a blank canvas and you're like, here, make make something. I'm like, I, uh, I guess I could put a tree and a rock. And then <laughs> I, my brain just shuts down when it comes to actually like just just, you know, storyboarding terrain. I don't know what why it's not like that. That shouldn't be the hard part. But yeah, just even planning it doesn't doesn't really work for me. Yeah. So, I mean, you talked a lot about you like to paint. Obviously, you like to paint. Mm. Uh, people probably recognize some of your stuff from the, the hype articles that Warhammer Community puts out. And there was a big gap between, you know, painting, you know, playing and painting and then just painting and now playing again. So what do you it seems to me from what you've said, you enjoy the fantasy stuff a bit more than the sci fi stuff. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's correct. But you still paint like your your Tron Tau, for example, or mm-hmm. uh, that's very Warhammer, uh, very, yeah. very sci fi. Uh, but nevertheless, it seems like you have a lot of passion for that. So talk talk to me a little bit about what draws you to one or the other and and how you kind of look at a project and decide, oh, I want to do this. I want to make that. That's that's a really interesting question. One I've actually tried to ask myself, because, like I said, my husband's good at the vehicle stuff in like industrial metal stuff. And I have the hardest time picturing what that should look like. Um, I'm way better at just naturally thinking of color schemes that fit in a more natural environment, which fantasy plays to instead of instead of the industrial grim dark setting. Like if if you like, I don't think you could pay me any amount of money and actually have me (laughs) create a real deal grim dark looking looking miniature i i i struggled to to do that so i th- i think that's part of it is just a natural affinity for the brighter colors of fantasy a more like organic material like flesh and fur and feathers and you know plants so i i think it's honestly just a natural aesthetic that i enjoy but that being said i don't have anything against sci-fi i i do like sci-fi but again my Tron Tau that were my segue into 40k are very clean. There's no battle damage. They're very um they have a satin finish on them, so it's almost of a, a shine yeah, coat to them. They're not grim dark at all. Yeah. <laughs> um the orcs, I absolutely adore orcs, 40k or or uh Sigma Age of Sigmar Fantasy. Um they are kind of my outlet to help me kind of split the difference because you have you have all this like green flesh and fabric and stuff like that. But then of course you have the traditional Mad Max style grunge. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of using them as a bridge to help me get more comfortable painting that industrial grungy um, aesthetic. So yeah. that it, it, it just comes to being comfortable with, with one set of textures over another. No, that makes perfect sense. Do you feel like, the things that you enjoy in, in real life, like things in nature influence that mm-hmm. like oh, perception like, of the model yeah. or. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, a thousand percent night that uh, honestly is probably, you probably hit the nail on the head. I am more inspired by like, I like hiking and I like nature photography and stuff. So whenever we go out in the mountains and stuff, I'm always taking pictures of, of co- potential color palettes of like, you know, layers of moss on a log kind of thing. Um, definitely inspired by nature over over the mechanical. So I I think that's 
uh, <laughs> you pretty much nailed it as far as I, I think by draw from one to the other, because I draw my inspiration from the natural environment. Yeah, my wife's pretty similar. Now, she she doesn't paint so much because she's kind of a perfectionist and she worries that she's going to do something wrong, which I <laughs> I just try and like get that out of your head. Like, of course, yeah. it's not always going to turn out perfectly. Like if you skip a step on your first miniature, no one is going to be upset. Like, or so, no, yeah, <laughs> nobody's going to be able to tell. It's fine. Uh, but she also really gets into more of the fantasy and the, the Age of Sigmar side of like Warhammer specifically. So far as like her inspirations, she likes mm-hmm. orcs as well because they're they're just funny. Uh, yeah, and, <laughs> the comedic relief. And that I mean. It's it's funny until you really think about it, but it is still also kind of funny if you really think about it at the same time. Oh, that's they're, they're that's my curse. Brutal. Yeah, they're totally totally horrifically brutal. Yeah, they're funny until you see them kill someone. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like me and sharks. I'm cool with sharks when they're on my TV screen, but I would never yes. want to be in the water with one. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. They're they're literally one of my biggest fears. <laughs> yeah. But so, um. Yeah. Yeah, so you talk about like taking pictures and you talk about going out in nature and things like that. I imagine that with social media and getting the the stuff that you've been working on put up on social media for people to react to, is that how your relationship with Games Workshop started? So far as like the uh, early release hype stuff? Uh, theirs was interesting. I So I've been posting like social media stuff like it's just I started my Instagram as a portfolio for myself once I started um that's where 2017 is coming from so I just kind of dabbled prior to 2017 but when that that year came around I became a mom and had much less time on my hands and was very stressed so that's when I started like painting a ton um like my sole hobby kind of stuff um oh sure so I've yeah, so that that's when my social media started, but that was literally just for a catalog for me. And then it kind of took off. Um I I painted some ice jaws. I think I think I sent you a picture of one of those. Um yeah, yeah. as probably one of the first things I had painted outside of college. Um cuz there there were like lulls in in the hobby um over the years, but uh yeah, so I painted some some iron jaws and an icy theme cuz we're in Montana. It was unbearably cold um and people seem to really like them so that that kind of generated some uh, uh like un, unsolicited pu- publicity and it just kind of escalated from there um and and again being in montana there was no local community so the online community is what i had to turn to to you know actually engage with fellow hobbyists um so that so it kind of started there and then it you know grew and grew and then one day on my uh twitter account one of the uh, marketing managers messaged me directly uh, and was like, Hey, uh, someone dropped your name to me. Love your stuff. Can we, you know, can we send you stuff? And so of course I was like, <laughs> yes. So as I'm like, you know, weeping from disbelief. <laughs> um, so that, that's honestly how my relationship with them started was just a kind person dropping my name to the powers that be. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I, I feel that uh, I'm, it's doing the early release stuff is interesting. Like on, on my side, I, I do some of the, the early release on the rules side. I don't really have like my own hobby Instagram. I, I tend to like, I'll post up progress pics and stuff. You've probably seen a couple of them in the local mm-hmm. group, but I, 
trying to keep it in like kind of inside into this like space that that i enjoy uh, but with on the other side with the rule stuff while i'm i'm super engaged and i want to make my contributions to whether it's like testing or or early release stuff meaningful it does also add like a little bit of pressure because there's deadlines yes. and things associated with that so how on the painting side do you feel like that early access stuff has affected your ability to enjoy it has it made it more stressful but has that stress been like a growth stress or has it been more of like a oh my gosh i'm trying to keep my life together like how tell me how you keep that work-life balance so this um so this whole relationship has been really new we're talking like the past like two months um so uh, maybe, maybe a little longer so i'm 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 still like trying to like get a feel for it uh but my initial like feeling of it is is that it is it is certainly more stressful because you actually have a business relationship now with the people who make the stuff you like so um i think it's stressful as far as like a performance thing um the deadlines are usually pretty pretty realistic as far as painting goes and and i they've been great to work with as far as like hey because I, I was on vacation for 10 days and they i wasn't expecting to get anything um, from them in those, you know, in those 10 days, but it was kind of a sudden rush job that they emailed us about. And I told them, you know, outright, Hey, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to make that. I come on, you know, come back from vacation the day that it's due. And they're like, Oh yeah, don't, don't worry about it. So just, you know, do what you can. So they're really good about not, um, you know, trying to stress you out. Cause I mean, technically you are not an employee. They can't like fire you. <laughs> um, I, th I think, I think in all honesty, they do want you to enjoy what they're sending you. I mean, that's part of the promotion part of it. Um, you don't want the people that are supposed to be broadcasting your hobby to be, you know, stressed out by it. So they've, they've been really, uh, relaxed as far as, uh, working with it, but it, it, I think it's more of just a personal pressure. Like I want this to look good. I want this to like, you know, be something they would be happy to use for their marketing material. Um, so it's, 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 I would say the, the fun outweighs the stress. And that's good. I mean, that's the good balance to have. And I can totally relate to kind of what you're saying with that. Just it, it's, it's like a different flavor of ice cream, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's joy in the process, but there are times where you kind of need to take a step back when things get a little bit busy and it's nice to kind of have that still waiting for you when you're on the other side of it. Right. Right. And, and, uh, there will be a new article. I, I think I'll be in it on the 26th and that, that was a large project that I kind of was dragging my feet on. So there is that, that kind of like, Oh, I should be, I should be doing this, but I want to paint this kind of offset. But, yeah. um, but, but again, it's, it's more fun, fun stress more than anything. It's a good problem to have is what I'm, what I'm trying to say Yeah. <laughs> without sounding too whiny. Oh, I've got so much stuff to paint. <laughs> so, <laughs> we all have too much stuff to paint. Let's yes. Be real. Yes. But, so, but overall subject, it's, it's good. Yeah. Like what is your sort of palette cleanser? Like, do you have a, do you have like a favorite faction or range that you like to paint? But like, I imagine that you do. And I would, I would love to know yeah. what that is. But I also would be interested in hearing what you would consider like your palate cleanser, the thing that's like reinvigorates <laughs> the passion for the passion. You're gonna <laughs> So you're gonna think this is like the dumbest thing ever. So, so orcs, <laughs> mm. the, orc, the, orc, the, the orcs are one. I do I do like to do them. 
Um, it depends on the project because if it's like a super meticulous, like heavily detailed project, then a lot of the times I like to go paint guardsmen, just Katie and guardsmen, because <laughs> it's so easy. And there's so many of them. I, I have a I've had a guardsman commission I've been working on for a guy for like two years now because he's not in a hurry and it's huge and it's just you know do it whenever you feel like it, which is the best project you can possibly have. Um, so I will literally after a games workshop project or even even just the you know complicated model, I will go paint guardsmen or orc boys, something where I can just vegetate and like binge on like old episodes of Murder She Wrote while I paint, um, and not really you know focus too much. <laughs> that might be the most imperial guard like metaphor for painting that I've ever heard. <laughs> That's like it's just when when you need something mindless to get your mind your 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 head out of out of things, pick a guardsman, and I'm yeah. sure the commissars would agree. Yeah, that's that's that it, they're they're um they're they're vanilla, but who, you know we need vanilla vanilla sometimes, <laughs> especially in cookies. Um, yes, but awesome. Okay. Well, that uh, honestly, that was not what I was expecting, but I am not disappointed. So because you can't go wrong. It's, it's khaki and green and black (laughs) and silver. There's like four colors involved. (laughs) So there's there's a little more, but yeah, well, naturally if, if that's like your palate cleanser, though, what is the, what is the thing that you dread? Like when a project's coming your way? It's something that may, maybe it's a commission, maybe it isn't like, but what is that thing where you just look like you have to emotionally prepare to paint this thing? What is that for you? Like, like this, like a style or a part of a model? Uh, I'm going to just say yes. Okay. So for style, it, literally anything, like if it's something that I know I will not enjoy, like as a whole, I I literally will just say, Hey, I'm, I'm not the person for this this just isn't this just won't look good because i i i just this just isn't my style I, this isn't me sounding like a prima donna it's just it would be as if you asked an opera singer to start riffing on a metal guitar like yeah they're musical but they're not this just isn't what they do so i'll tell them that and in that case it's usually stuff like imperial knights again big mechanical things uh outside of the wacky tobacco orc stuff the orc stuff you can't mess up everything is asymmetrical and bonkers but any kind of um like gunship knights any like highly symmetrical mechanical thing that is my my don't don't go there zone um and again i've tried like tanks and stuff and after those two i was like i i'm i'm good um as far as parts of a model like just overall um, I'd, I'd have to say faces just because I, I'm not great at like I can do them, but, yeah. <laughs> but the amount of stress doing them is so much worse compared to other parts of the model. Well, and that's one of the things like and about painting a model is that the way that we are wired as people like a face becomes a focal point for our attention. Right. So if uh-huh. it doesn't yeah. look right, you notice really quickly. Right, exactly. So, so I can, and I can, see and why I can, that would I be can get there. It's just the getting there part takes so much longer, and it's such a like tiny, tiny millimeter 
sized surface that you're like, it'll be fine, right? They won't notice. And then you take pictures and look at it and you're like, oh. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to ask you to pick your favorite child. I mean, your favorite color. Uh, so what, <laughs> what is your favorite color to, to paint? Like if you, you could just have everything be this color. What color weird, would you pick? Weirdly enough, my favorite color in the real world, like clothing, everything else is green. Any shade of green or teal. But looking over my models, my favorite thing to paint is like a rust orange, like a um, like an auburn to a rust. Like, gotcha. again, autumn leaf, autumn leaf color. I adore I adore painting that. I don't know why. I love those shades tones of, personally as well. Shades of shades of orange. OK. Well, what about your least favorite color to put on a model? Like the thing that oh. either gives you the most trouble or the thing you think just looks tacky or frustrating. What is it? Uh, I'm I'm really bad with purple. I've watched Vince Venturella's um, purple. He he does this amazing, um, these amazing videos and he, he has segments on specific colors. And I watched his one on purple about three or four times, and I still stink at it. I have the hardest time brightening it without making it a totally different shade than what I'm picturing in my head. Um, it, ends, it either ends up looking too burgundy, or it ends up looking too blue, or too pastel. And it's it just seems to be a very finicky color that I haven't figured out yet. And I am totally out the window with pink. I I, I just haven't, like come other than like pink horrors i guess i just haven't jumped to like oh i'll paint that pink like that that's just not where my mind goes <laughs> with that color so pink and pink and purple zinch zinch would kill me if he heard that but it's fine uh he would plan on planning on eventually planning on killing you i'm sure yeah <laughs> yeah 17 plot twists later yes and then you die of old <laughs> age was... <laughs> all according to plan <laughs> You've been painting purple the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so on the on the modeling side, like what, or I guess we could call it a, a mix between the assembly and painting process. What is your favorite step, and what's your least favorite step for the assembly part? For oh. assembly and painting together, we'll say. Oh, my least favorite is just assembly in general. I, 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 I have, um, I have outsourced it on several occasions, like for example, building like 80 guardsmen. I'm like, mm, 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 mm. um, and towel, towel mechs. I have definitely handed that off to people who are way better at building mechs than me. Um, so definitely assembly just overall least favorite part. If I could have a little like gnome following me around to do it all the time, I would, uh, <laughs> um, but and, uh, the second half was what's my favorite part of, Painting, yeah, yeah, the or, opposite. or the, in, yeah. in general. What's that favorite um, I step? Would, I would say, honestly, and this is going to sound really strange, I would say, um, I, so I really like contrast paints, and I know they're kind of a love hate thing, but I like them because they're a mix between base coating and shade coating. Yeah. So I, I like, I like that, that step because it's instant gratification. You get the shade coating and you get the color like the basic color that you're going to work off all in one shtick. And you do have to be careful with, you know, pooling and make sure it doesn't oversaturate yeah, one yeah. spot. But, but if you're going to be going in with, you know, additional highlights and layers, you're going to be doing that anyway. Um, so I'd, sure. I'd say that just that initial, like there's the color kind of feeling um, like I, that foundation 
that's not entirely base coding because base coding is is pretty tedious sometimes. <laughs> yes, yes, it can be. I find that I have like personally, there's there's the ugly stage of the painting where it's like mm-hmm. I've got the the colors mostly blocked in, but right. it just it looks like a a sloppy mess. But there's this point, right. and the, and it's never the same point on each miniature. But it's like where it's like, oh, this is coming together now. And then yes, I get excited yeah. and then I get like the urge to finish the model. Um, yes. Yes. It's, that's it's such an incredible feeling. Like my husband will like hear me say something. I'll be like, yeah, there it is. And he's like, are you all right down there? I'm like, yep, yep, we're good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, th- definitely. I, I definitely get that feeling. And I think that's why I don't like vehicles very much because they are in a constant state of looking terrible until <laughs> until you do like the the uh, the weathering and stuff and stuff. Fair enough. Fair enough. So for any new or hesitant painters out there, what is the one tip you wish you had known at the beginning of your painting life that you know now? Like, what what is that thing there? Like, oh, this would have saved me so much time or frustration. Hmm. Do you have something like that? I, I, I do. I, um, it's just different from when I started because I was 14 and you know, there wasn't Google to Google stuff. Sure. Um, the, the resources just weren't there. Um, I would say as far as just, and I wasn't really scared of messing up is the crazy thing. Cause I, I didn't care. No one else was seeing it, but me. So I would ju- jumping off that. I would say just don't like, like, like you said about your wife, don't be afraid of messing up. There's no, there's literally no downside to it. Like, yeah, I get it. The models can be expensive. Um, I literally think that might be the only drawback to if you mess up because no one, I mean, if you mess up, just don't share it online. <laughs> don't go around showing it if you're, if you yeah, like, you're nervous if you about feel it. like you're, yeah, exactly. So like no one, no one's going to care. We all have to start somewhere as cheesy as that sounds. But I mean, I started with folk art craft paints and, and my oh, yeah. book so yeah yeah it's yep. that was everyone's a chunky monkey um but i still have my i, I have not repainted my lizard men they're the they're the, what they were um back then so I, I i would say as far as new painters go don't be afraid of messing up i mean if you do and it's unsalvageable it's it's fine i would start with a small like box set like a 30 dollars box set like that's what like three meals at wendy's if you if you mess up there so i i i think that would be it i think that's probably the biggest what i hear the most of uh from from new painters is that i I don't want to mess this up kind of thing they don't really say why though but yeah it's almost like they're they're so afraid of failing they don't start right yeah exactly okay exactly no i feel that i mean i got used to my painting sucking early on i i was painting (laughs) like horses with the craft store paint and it was like yeah. stuff. It was just it was the thing my dad would let me do. I'd just plop down next to him, and that's what I would do. And uh, he would always fix it and touch it up a little bit later. But I guess I kind of right. got used to seeing my stuff not look great from the beginning, and that helped. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never like went into it going like, "Oh man, I'm gonna paint. It's gonna be the coolest thing. I'm gonna share it with everybody." I I literally was just like, I just just want to make these things colorful like i just it was literally like a coloring book it was like a 3d coloring book to me so i would i would approach it that way don't 
don't look at other painters who have been doing this forever and go like, oh, I'm never going to be there because it doesn't. Or you have really to matter. start there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, I mean, I honestly wouldn't even like make that the end goal to be the best because then you're going to just constantly have this like amount of stress on yourself. It's it's meant to be the whole process is meant to be enjoyable, not this like Olympian tryout thing. <laughs> For sure. So on the opposite end of that, what is like the most useless hobby tip or like painting fad that you've seen that you just looked at and thought, mm, no, I don't want to do that. Like, or, or this doesn't seem all that helpful. Like, do you have any, anything like that? Uh, kind of without saying too much, pointing fingers too much at certain brands, there are quote unquote pro dry brushes. <laughs> that are round <laughs> that are have a okay. rounded shape to them that's a good one that they're they're actually uh-huh they're sold by i've seen them in two different brands so far both that are very very good commonplace name brand product um uh, manufacturers and they sell their quote pro <laughs> dry brushes and their selling point is that oh it's they're rounded and they're densely packed bristles well, yeah, you know what else is? Literally, I don't know, eyeshadow brushes, concealer brushes, multiple cheap cosmetic brushes are identical to them. And to the point, and I, I was going to make a video on this, but I thought it was kind of a, a kind of a jerk move if I did, where I tested them out across the two brands selling them and compared them to the makeup brushes there was zero difference whatsoever it wasn't like it wasn't even like oh yeah this is a little bit better but not to the point where i'd pay for it it was okay these are this this is insane these are absolutely identical (laughs) and bristles and texture everything so um instead of buying quote pro uh, marketed as pro dry brushes go to walmart go to target get a cheap two to three dollar makeup brush uh Something about the size of your your fingernail in width is really all you need unless you're doing terrain. And if that's the case, if you are doing terrain, just get a bigger makeup brush. Either way, it's going to cost you like at least, I don't know, probably half of what they're charging for the uh, the pro ones. Oh, but sometimes you want your paintbrush handles to match. I, I, I well, I'm, house, I'm, one of them, the, the bristles <laughs> on the pro one. No, no, I, I, no, I got you. The, the pro ones on one of them, the bristles started falling out. and and. To, to, in their defense, this was like their like first like quote Kickstarter release of this, oh but boy. I'm like, mm, mm, mm. so yeah, d- d- don't I I I was a marketing major like that's 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 what my degree in is marketing, so I have to take that stuff with a grain of salt because I you know I know the shenanigans. Right. <laughs> I have been involved with said shenanigans before, so uh, don't don't take. You, you got to take some marketing. There's a point of diminishing returns on the quote pro side of the products. For sure. For sure. Okay, cool. Now I sound, now I sound like a smug jerk, but no, okay. I mean, this is <laughs> the information that so people need to know. This is, this is life changing for, for people who think, but I need the brand name brush. You don't, I mean, to a point. Yeah. There's, there's like tools out there. There are, there's certain, you know, brands better than the other but you don't i wouldn't say you ever need to have one you know to have any particular brand over another 
to the point where you wouldn't be able to hobby without it kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, my my like wish I would have known is the hobby scraper. And I know people use oh, exacto knife yeah. for that kind of thing, but like I spent years without the hobby scraper thinking it was just a gimmick and then I got one like with the like a gift card or something. Um or yeah. it was like a prize or something and then I was I I was just like, "Oh my goodness. This is Those changing are, my world." I, yep. I see see because my my mind I I completely agree my mind didn't go there because I always try and block the whole assembly process out of my brain. So <laughs> but yes. Yes, that that is a good tool. That and um, wet palettes; those are two. Um, the hype is real, kind of things. Uh, I guess if you're I mixing your own paints, yeah, I I kind of feel like my wet palette has barely changed my painting, and I don't. Maybe I, I'm I don't, just. I don't wet use mine all wrong. the time. Yeah, but. it's 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 not a hundred percent a necessity. It is a it is a useful tool that I well you don't need it with contrast paints because they you're they'll dilute basically if you if they'll basically absorb too much and not work the way they should. So I don't use mine all the time, but as far as if you, if you are looking at painting as your primary focus of the hobby, I, that is something I would say is a, I wouldn't say it's a necessity, but it is a good tool to have. Okay. Well, now that that's good information and I appreciate you sharing it with us. There's one last fairly silly question that I would like you to answer. <laughs> And I just want to know how in either or both of the Warhammer main franchise universes, how do you think you would die? Oh, man, I can tell you, like, just just from playing, <laughs> just from playing Warcry, I can tell you exactly how. Are, are we talking about me as me or me as like my what I would want to be in 40K? I'm going to leave it open. I just I want to hear okay. what you have to say. <laughs> Okay, well, I, I, if I had to, if I could choose to exist in 40k, if it was like a, uh, like player one, not virtual reality, but just like you are, you are there, but you can choose what you want to be. I'd absolutely be an orc. Um, and I would die the way most orcs die, which is just charging gleefully headlong into the biggest enemy I can. So yes, probably, you know, getting incinerated in the face with a melt -a gun, I would assume. Something along those lines. What happens to the spearhead guys that go flying in despite all <laughs> with reckless abandon, you know, that's so, so morbidly positive. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's why I love the orcs, because they they I get that glee from the like kind of bonsai charge thing. Like, I, I love that so much as a human. I'd probably die the same way, but with my eyes closed. <laughs> with your eyes closed okay all right fair <laughs> enough fair enough all right cool well if people are interested in following you on your social medias uh please uh, give us the the handles and all that i'll be putting them in the show notes as well for people to reference um but yeah please feel free to share that so people can check out your stuff awesome yeah i'll i'll uh, i'll send you the link i have a link tree which is like an umbrella that holds like all the social media links. So you don't have to go clicking, you know, each individual one. Basically, if you click that, it'll say, you know, Instagram, Facebook page, wh whatever your, your cup of tea is as far as social media. So I will, I will provide you with that so you can put it in, in the notes. Excellent. Well, everybody make sure at this moment you go and look at the notes. Uh, it'll be up on the YouTube or uh, wherever you are downloading your podcasts and they allow us to put notes in, which is most what? of them, but Yes. Hey, Chris, Chris, can I ask you a question? Uh, absolutely. What What is, and maybe you've answered it before. What What's your Warhammer death? I've, I've never been asked this. And now that I've shared mine, I want to know yours. 
Oh, definitely. Definitely. I, I, a lot of people like to say, oh, well, I wouldn't be anybody special. I'd just be like a guardsman because I'm not cool. It's like, I'm, that's thinking small for me. That's very anti 40K. So, I personally, I feel like I would fall to the black rage and, and die <laughs> killing something that I just hated with every fiber of my being. That's probably oh how I would die. Yeah. Oh, man. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that that's pretty intense. That's pretty grim dark right there. <laughs> I don't know, but there's something very liberating because at least I would feel like I was sanguineous for a minute first. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's that's like not gleeful killing, though. You must be, you must be like happy. Orc, orcs are happy when they're, you know, bull rushing into a mob of um, <laughs> against or tier or uh, whatever the tyranid infantry is called. I can never remember. Hormigans, termagants. Termagants, that's the word. I was like picturing it in my head, but then couldn't like pronounce it. That's okay. Cool. Awesome. Good death. I I I agree. <laughs> but uh <laughs> thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, I look forward to seeing you around the community some more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely um touch base at one of the other tournaments. I'm sure there'll be more in the future and thank you again so much for having me this was a lot of fun awesome well we will uh we'll end there and wish everybody a happy thanksgiving slash holiday season and the chief librarian show will be back next year cheers all right happy thanksgiving guys bye-bye Hey, tough luck tonight, buddy. Yeah, tough new hotness, more like it. <laughs> sure, pal. Same time next week? Sure. See ya. <sighs> what am I gonna do about the new hotness? Amanda, we need to talk. Yeah, Kato Sicarius. No, it is I, Robute Gilliman, and we need to talk about your performance tonight. Aw, oh, come on, Robute. He's playing the new hotness. What can I do? Well, the Codex says to use the terrain to your advantage, not leaving your whole army set up in the open. But, Rabute, the best I can do is this packing styrofoam that came with my dad's TV. Heresy! You can do better than that. Buy some MDF terrain from Frontline Gaming. Frontline Gaming? Isn't that that company run by the guy who sounds like he has strep throat all the time? Hey, bro, not cool. Silence! Don't get distracted. This is how you forgot to bring in your reserves. But, Rabute, I don't even know what MDF means. It's woodcut with last guns or something. It's not important. It's quality, durable terrain made for all modes of play with different themes like desert, ruined city, industrial, aliens, and more. But I hate painting terrain. It's boring. Never fear. Frontline Gaming has painting services as well. You're right, Lord Gilliman. I should order some. But how do I do that? Where do I start? Go to www.frontlinegaming.org to find out more about terrain, miniatures, painting services, hobby articles, 
and events. Gee, thanks, Rabute. Any more advice for your loyal force commander? Not now, commander. I have to go back and check on Marnius. Last time I was gone this long, the 500 worlds became the 375. Go ahead and check out www.frontlinegaming.org. Tell them the chief librarian sent you. Hello and welcome back to the second segment of today's episode of The Chief Librarian. And I am here to talk to you about building a crusade army. And this is less of a, this is how you build a crusade army, and more of like, what is what was the experience of building a crusade army? How does the system work? How does it feel as a player for those who don't know about it? And it's going to talk about some of the decisions that I made as a Crusade player trying to build a thematic army list for the campaign, as well as just the general experience of was this way too much paperwork? And the answer to that, you know, 20 words or less is yes. But I do think still that there's some really good things in Crusade that make it very interesting and a good way of playing the game. And once you can cross that sort of initial paperwork hurdle, it gets a little bit easier. So when I was building my crusade army list, one of the things that I had was a it was a journal that came out when crusade first came out with ninth edition. And it was a journal that had the, the data sheet stuff that you needed for crusade. Now, the problem with that book is that it had on one page, the entire army list, like the army summary roster. And then on the next page, it was just one unit entry sheet. The problem with that is you turn the page, the sheet on the left is a brand new army list sheet and the page on the right is another unit sheet. So unless you plan on doing a lot of crusades that only involve one unit, that book actually didn't end up being all that handy for me. Because even if I wanted to say, try and remove one of the redundant army list sheets, well, the unit sheet is attached to the other side of it. So you can't even really do that, which even that would be about you know 50% wasteful of the book, slightly less perhaps. But seeing as I have a graphic design background and I had some free time, what I ended up doing was making some scanned copies of that, of each of those papers, and then creating my own sheets from that. So I had one army list sheet that I blew up to be a bit bigger. And then I put four of the unit sheets on a single page, you know, eight and a half by 11 printer size in the in the US. And I use that to keep track of the different units. So for every block of four units, I'll just put like uh, troops, elites, HQ, and I organize it that way so I can keep all my HQ on one sheet and track all of their stuff and then troops, etc. And as I expand it, I can just print out a new sheet, write elites on it and keep them together that way. Now, if you are starting out in Crusade and you just have the stuff that's in the book, the problem that you're going to run into is that, well, one, you need to, in the basic rulebook, make a copy of the roster sheet, make a copy of the unit sheet, and then you will need to continually copy all of those out. But they're not, they're, they're both huge, you know, book-sized, full-page versions of that. And that can be a little bit tricky if you don't know how to use a scanner or if you don't have something easily accessible. Now, if Games Workshop was smart, they would have these documents as free PDF downloads on the Warhammer community site, but they don't. So that is another you know, strike against the effectiveness of the system is that it doesn't seem to be very well supported, 
despite the amount of obvious effort that the people who write these books go into to create crusade rules for these factions. Now, as I am focusing on Blood Angels for my crusade force, from an organizational standpoint, I have to go through on each and every single unit card and say, well, this is Faction Imperium, Subfaction Space Marines, selectable keyword Blood Angels. And of course, that also means that when I'm building my army, I have to have the main rule book with the general crusade rules and the, the normal, like basic requisitions and unit upgrades. Then I have to have the Space Marine book for all of the Space Marine specific stuff. And then I need the Blood Angel book on top of that to do all of the specific Blood Angel stuff, have access to their relics and unique requisitions and agendas and things like that. Thankfully, there was a spare desk that had enough room to have all three of those books open at the same time for me to look at, while I still got my phone out to help me actually build the army list. Now, thankfully, this is done using power level. So the, the actual building of the army list, so far as putting together how much stuff costs and all that, is a lot easier than trying to hammer out a specific points value. Of course, the big drawback from this, from a paperwork perspective, is each one of the units that you take for your initial 50 power level requires its own tracking sheet. So every single unit that you pick, you have to go through main faction Imperium, blah, 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 write it all down, write down their equipment, uh, put a name on them. They need to have a custom name. And thankfully, there's naming charts for those of us who aren't creative when it comes to naming our units and sergeants and whatnot. Nevertheless, the initial paperwork load is pretty daunting. Yeah, and I, I don't want to say that in such a way as it stops people from even trying, because really, once you get that first chunk out of the way, as you're playing games and you're adding requisition to your pool, you have the ability to just do one more unit at a time. And if there's a week or two weeks or a month between games, that's actually a lot less daunting because you have time to think about it time to think of a name, how you want to kit them out, how they fit into your army. And it's just one or two units at a time. It's not eight or nine or however many you're able to do, depending on the army that you have. So that beginning step is really probably the most challenging part of putting all of this stuff together. So if you're looking to get into Crusade, there's going to be some things that you're going to want to do to make your life a little bit easier. I do recommend finding somebody who has some graphic design experience or taking the time to fiddle around with it on your own to make the process of getting all of the, the paperwork together much easier. Additionally, you want to make sure that if you have a book that requires subfactions to have their own books like Space Marines, having Blood Angel codex supplements, etc., etc., Make sure you have them all open at the same time. Find some space for it. Otherwise, you're going to just be spending a lot of time flipping between books, putting one down, picking the other one up, making room for it, etc., etc. It's much nicer to have everything out in front of you where you can see it. Now, the other thing that you're going to have to get used to tracking is a new sort of resource. Now, 40K already has plenty of resources that you have to track in match play because you have your command abilities, you have your command points, and that's a resource. You have your points to build your army, ever power level, which reflects on certain rules here or there, you know, it can affect whether you put something in strategic reserves or not, or however that works, right? So keep these additional things in mind as you're building your list out, because you have your power level limitation. That's like your crusade 
army force size, and you can spend a, a requisition resource to increase that at a rate of one requisition point gains you an extra five power level for your crusaded force. Those requisition points can also be used to pay and purchase upgrades such as warlord traits and uh, special relics and things. Those are things that in match play, we're all just kind of used to getting. We're used to being like, okay, so you have your warlord, your warlord gets a warlord trait and you get a free relic and you want more relics, you pay command points for it. Well, in Crusade, you have to pay requisition points for it and requisition points are a lot harder to get. And when you put a relic on somebody, it stays with them. So if you want your warlord to have a warlord trait, you're going to need to pay a requisition point for it in the beginning. Thankfully, it's built into the crusade rules that when you start a new crusade, you have five requisition points. Now, when I was building my army list, I decided to spend three of those requisition points to increase the power level size of my army. There were a few roles that just I needed to have space open to fill with my initial army list. And some of those were thematic choices and some of those were kind of a take all comers. I need something that can do this sort of a choice, but not having enough room to actually do it. And then I also spent one to give my warlord, who is the librarian, Ratziel, a warlord trait. Now, if you like role playing games, whether you're playing Dungeons and Dragons or doing something on the computer, this is kind of the part where it starts getting really fun is the customizations for your army and for your character. Now, I could have very easily burned all my requisition, just dumping a bunch of points into making my warlord extra special and giving him a warlord trade and giving him a bunch of relics because you can put more than one relic on characters in your crusade force. But I wanted to really get into the spirit of slow grow and I wanted to make sure that the army itself you know, the functionality of it wasn't sacrificed just so that I could have this one cool guy who would probably still die really, really quickly anyways. So I only spent one requisition on a warlord trait for my librarian Ratziel. And so far as competitive blood angels go, the go to for it is the precognition psychic power. You know, it's the visions of the future that some rare blood angels get to have. And it's affecting game is really nice. You get a reroll a hit, reroll a wound, and reroll a save. That's very nice and dandy. And I do like that from a competitive standpoint, but I'm trying to engage in a fantasy here. And one of my favorite fantasies and one of my favorite things about the Blood Angels is the fact that they are artisans, that they spend their free time as a way of dealing with their hmm, tumultuous emotional states from time to time making beautiful things and expressing their passion via beauty as opposed to violence. That duality is something that I really, really love about the chapter. And it's something that I wanted to have my proxy on the tabletop engage in. So I gave him instead the artisan of war warlord trait. And the kind of cool RP benefit like optimization of that is that it let me choose a piece of specialist war gear, not a relic per se, but I was able to put Artificer Armor on my librarian. And that works for me in another way because the model itself has fancier armor than just your stock librarian does. So not only does it aesthetically fit the model that I have created for this, but it additionally allowed me to engage in that Artificer fantasy. I, I would love, like if I didn't have Carpal Tunnel, I would love to like do a blacksmithing apprenticeship and make that my career. 
you could call that a, a holy envy of mine. It's just this idea that I would love, love, love to do blacksmithing as either a hobby or a career. Unfortunately, it's not something that's really an option for me at the moment. But that's what role play and that's what fun fantasy things are there for is to let you just kind of engage with the ideas like, well, you know what? In this universe, I make some pretty dope stuff. Now, another thing that you need to keep in mind when you're building your crusade army list is that you're not building necessarily a force organization chart. Though when you play the game, you are definitely going to want to organize your troops and your forces in such a way that allows you to fill a detachment of some kind. I knew right away that I wanted to have a battalion detachment. So I built my army list with a battalion's restrictions and requirements in mind. So that meant, at minimum, I needed two HQ choices. This campaign is just getting started, and the initial forces that the Blood Angels are deploying, according to the way that I have this figured in the narrative, is I'm not going to send my captain down on a scouting mission. I'm not going to send my main commander of this whole campaign, who's likely busy distributing the forces of the fleet and organizing everything from the get-go. I want him to come in a little bit later, and I'm not role-playing as that character anyway, so it makes sense that for a, a, an initial set of engagements, that instead the sub-commander, my librarian, would go down. But he needs a buddy. So it was a, a bit of a toss-up for me whether I wanted to get a sanguinary priest or a chaplain to be the buddy. On the one side, I was considering the role of the chaplain and the death company, etc., etc., and the risks that would be associated with having a librarian deployed and how, on the more paranoid side, the Blood Angels would feel that they should probably have somebody watching a librarian commander on the ground. However, I feel like the chaplain makes more sense as a choice if I'm bringing Death Company, and I decided not to include Death Company in the initial makeup of my army. And I'm uh, let me explain how I came to that decision. So some of the old school Blood Angel fans would remember that there used to be a mechanic where you would roll for each unit to determine the number of Death Company, and people who are familiar with the Blood Angels Crusade rules know that there are Crusade requisition options that you can take so far as having a lieutenant or a captain fall to the death company. Now, having a death company unit is actually still something that you purchase, but units can get rage points and things like that. The, the big thing that I wanted to try and recreate for my own fantasy was, do I have death company now? Did, I, did any brothers fall to the death company? before this campaign started. So what I decided to do to decide whether or not I would have Death Company in my army to start off with was to use the same rules from the third edition and roll for each unit. But instead of pulling a model and adding it to a Death Company unit, I decided that I would wait until the number of models that I rolled would equal a unit of Death Company and then spend the requisition to create that unit in my army. And that's the point when I would need a chaplain. So the old rule was that for every unit before a game of 40k back in 3rd edition, you would roll a d6 and on a 4, 5, or 6, a model from that unit 
would join the death company. And if you rolled a six, then you'd roll again for that unit. And it was literally just plug a model after you roll the dice, put it in the death company unit or use a death company model to represent the brother who was gone. And suddenly like your 10 man squad of tactical Marines was seven or, you know, depending on how many sixes you rolled. So I rolled for all the units of my army and only two of the units had a brother fall. So once that counter reaches five, I'm going to add a unit of death company to my army to represent them. And I'm keeping track of which ones are primaris and which ones are uh, regular Marines, because that's going to influence which of the death company variants I decide to bring to the army itself. This could get interesting because I don't actually have any Primaris Death Company built right now, but I do have some intercessor models that are primed that would be ready for a, a coat of black and some red cross hatches. So that would be an easy enough change to make, I think. So for the theme of the army, I wanted to still explore the idea that it hasn't become a fully Primaris company yet. There are firstborn marines and then there are the newer primaris marines many of those are likely from the indominus crusade who were reassigned to the blood angels after the devastation when gilliman came over so i wanted to have a mix of primaris and firstborn marines in this initial outing i guess you could say to that end i didn't bring any scouts but i did want to have something that would fill kind of the role of scouts so I have incursors to represent the Primaris troops of my army so far. And then I have a unit of tactical Marines to represent the firstborn in the troops section. So I have two units of five incursors, and then I have a unit of tactical Marines with a heavy bolter and the sergeants kitted out a little bit. He'll be a veteran sergeant once the unit gains enough experience for me to buy that upgrade. I also have a unit of the Primaris Outriders. It's a unit that I'm very excited to get on the table and actually play with. It's the only unit, I think, from the Indominus box set release that I've actually gotten finished. But because there's just been so many other options that were a little bit better for the list that I was using competitively, I never got a chance to put these guys on the table. And it made sense to have a fast unit of Outriders to accompany the Incursors as they're going up the field. So I have the Outriders there. And then to further sort of build on that Phobos theme, I have a unit of Eliminators, two with Laz Fusils, and then the Instigator Bolt Carbine on the Sergeant. So he is also filling sort of a, a sniper slash heavy weapons role because the damage three on those carbines is neat and nifty. But I still also wanted to buy into the fantasy that I've been building with my third company, Blood Angels, where so much of the chapter is themed after a Horus Heresy aesthetic. And to that end, I researched a sort of forgotten piece of Blood Angels lore. It's from a short story by James Swallow called Redeemed. Now, a little bit of a spoiler alert here, but there is a set of novels that he wrote, the first omnibus of Rafen story. And in that, a group of space marines led by a inquisitor go out on a quest to find the lost spear of Telesto. And I believe that the spear of Telesto is first referenced in Blood Angels lore in these books. And it became a big deal in the later Horus Heresy books, which were, of course, 
set before this time. Nevertheless, once they secure the spear, and we don't actually get to see like the journey of finding it per se in the book, so that's not really a spoiler, but the fact that they get to bring it home, what happens to it after that? So this short story talks about how the protagonist from that first omnibus, Rafin, actually gets the spear and takes it back to where it's going to go. And it's this very little known place, and I'm not sure that it's ever mentioned anywhere else in Blood Angel's lore, but it is called Regio Kinkaginta Unis, which is kind of like a fake Latin way of saying Sector 15 or Area 15 or Section 15, Region 15, something to that effect. But it is apparently the main forge where all of the tech marines keep the chapter relics. And because this is something that when I was first reading Blood Angel books years and years ago, the fact that this thing existed and that I knew that this is where the spear ended up after the big conflict that happened in the first Rafen omnibus, I wanted to think about, well, with all of the things that happened with the siege of, of Ball, there were likely a bunch of relics and things that the Blood Angels had that they could utilize in the battle but this particular facility despite the heavy defenses that it is described as having i'm betting that it was probably either closed or sealed off or that things were moved around that the main focus of the attack be on the fortress monastery itself and that the forces of the blood angels be not split between one greater fortress and one lesser fortress at the same time I doubt that they had the capacity or the ability to bring in every single relic vehicle and everything from there. So it was likely sealed off with a bunch of older armor sets, ceremonial things, or ancient relics left there. Now, the lore that I have for my third company is that in the haste to rebuild after the devastation, they went to this area and uncovered and started using some of these relics because a lot of the stuff that they had was broken or it was stuff that was only for some of the the new primaris marines a lot of the resupply that they got was aimed at them so instead of having a bunch of spare dead people things that they could use because the tyranids destroyed so much of it they actually went further into the past and dante gave them the thumbs up to unearth and start using some of the more ancient relics that maybe were just on display or were forgotten about over time. So to represent that philosophy on the battlefield for my crusade force, I decided that I was going to bring a Relic Contemptor Dreadnought. And don't worry, I'm not bringing the Volkite hotness that's going on right now. I'm literally bringing the one that I built loaded out for my 30k army, which has a chain fist and a plasma cannon. So I'm bringing that. And then I am also bringing some Cataphractii Terminators. Because again, some of this stuff is thematic, but some of it is also for effectiveness. I feel like so far as a, a power gaming choice, the Relic Terminators aren't really a, a powerhouse unit. Nobody's really worried about taking them, but they are still, I mean, 2 plus armor save with a 5 plus plus invulnerable save. They still have some some oomph to them, and I have basically my Horus Heresy loadout already on there, which is supported in the current data sheet. So 
got some lightning claws. I got some power weapons. Uh, I've got some combi bolters. And it's just going to be a, a good sort of solid unit that will move up the board with some of my non-jump packed units and characters. Another thing I wanted to bring into my Crusade army was the idea of a command squad. Uh, it used to be when I started playing Warhammer 40k that the units that you brought, like your captains or your chapter masters, there was a unit that you could take called a command squad, which had an apothecary in it, which had a you know a standard bearer, and then it had a couple of veterans. You could even throw a tech marine in that squad as well. It was all part of the same unit. Well, that's obviously not a thing anymore, but I did want to use models that would pay homage to that old tradition in Space Marine Armulus building. So coming back to my second HQ choice, it felt thematically appropriate if I'm bringing this honor guard that used to have an apothecary in it to have a sanguinary priest be my second HQ. And then my librarian has a more hopeful, because that's what I associate with the sanguinary priests is kind of a more hopeful aesthetic, a channel your your fury, a spiritual guardianship that goes beyond just the if you twitch, I'm going to put you in the death company and more into a I want to help you fight better, but I also want to save your soul and preserve you and your gene seed for future generations sort of a thing. So I've got some company veterans. I've got a an ancient. It's just a, a regular ancient firstborn Marine, and he's wearing Mark four armor for, you know, power armor. And then I've got a company champion. How effective is this going to be? I'm not sure, but I feel like it covers some bases. It stays true to the theme. And if there's something that I don't like, I, or that just doesn't end up working, depending on how things with the rest of the campaign go, I can switch it out later. But I wanted to err on the side of something that I feel like will play okay, that fits into my theme. And something that I can develop and help a little bit later. So that's most of what composes my first like 65 power level of my army. Is three troop choices, two HQs, a little smattering of of like single unit elites. And you know company champion, company ancient, that sort of a thing. And some support for them. As well as the Terminators and the Contemptor. Just this idea that we're bringing out the old, the old stuff that we didn't use because we were worried that it would get broken or we just couldn't support it at the time. But now all of the new stuff is being built for the Primaris, so we have to go to the old stuff for the Firstborn. So that's my theme. That's what I decided to start with my Crusade, and I'm going to be building off of that going into the future. So I hope that this segment was an interesting sort of commentary for you on how I decided I wanted to bring the narrative into my army list while still keeping it something that would be semi-competitive, at least to the point where I don't think I'm going to auto-lose just by bringing this stuff, and by staying true to the theme of my army in general. I'm playing the fantasy that I want to play with a librarian who's a master artificer, who's on a journey of progression through the course of this campaign, and how some of these other characters, the Sanguinary Priest, the eventual chaplain, and the development of the death company across the campaign how all that's going to play out i'm very excited to see so thank you for taking the time to listen i hope that you all enjoy the upcoming holidays and 
I'll see you again in the Librarius. And with that, we conclude the final episode of the Chief Librarian Podcast for the year 2021. Thank you all for coming on this journey with me. So far as when you can expect the next episode to come out, expect it to come out probably sometime mid-January. I am going to be in the process of doing some home renovations, and part of that is basically building a hobby room. And in the meantime, I am going to need to focus on getting all that stuff ready. So we'll say that that room is my hobby progress goal before the next episode. And we'll see if I am successful before I get another chance to record. Hopefully, by the time I come back, I'll be able to come back with a bang. Should I start off the new year doing a Why I Love Blood Angels? Or should I just save that for another time? How long am I going to just keep you all waiting? Or will I surprise you with something like why I love Tyranids? Spoiler alert, I don't love Tyranids. You'll just have to wait and see. In the meantime, feel free to still reach out and message me at facebook.com slash brothercaptainmorgan for my page Captain Morgan's Librarius. But until next time, I bid you all a fond farewell and hope that you successfully finish the rest of the year in peace and happiness. Or, you know, an eternity of war, whichever suits your fancy. Cheers. Hey, you. Yes, you. Right there. You are listening to the Frontline Gaming Network. So what does that mean? That means that you have access to a bunch of different and interesting shows. Right now, I'm listening to a lot of Signals from the Frontline because who has time nowadays to follow on your own and get all of the latest news in the gaming hobby? It is streamed every Wednesday, and I never catch it for the stream, but I do catch it later. I especially enjoy Kicker's commentary. He is 40k hype man USA, and I challenge anyone, I dare you, to try and prove me wrong or to upstage the hype that is Kicker Kalazdi. So, with my recommendation in hand, go and listen to Signals from the Frontline on the Frontline Gaming Network. I am Chris Morgan, and you are listening to a Creative Commons licensed podcast. Some rights reserved.